Uh, if you have Bibles, we're in John chapter 8 today. Uh, John chapter 8, if you've got one of those black hardcover Bibles, that's going to be page 895. So you can make your way, uh, make your way there. Uh, I moved to uh, central Pennsylvania three and a half years ago. Never lived here before, um, so it's still relatively new to me. Um, one of the first things that I noticed when I moved here three and a half years ago was that there was an absurd number of two types of businesses, beauty salons and antique stores. Beauty salons and antique stores. Um, if somebody has the explanation for that, if somebody knows why that is, I would love for you to help me understand why that is. It baffles me that one particular region could need so many of these things. The only explanation that I can come up with is that we like old stuff, but we like to look as young as possible, as good as possible, while we rummage through all that old stuff. But since we live in a, in a part of the country that's antique-saturated, shall we say, uh, many of you may be familiar with a PBS show called uh, The Antique Roadshow. Anybody familiar with that? Antique Roadshow? Well, in July of 2011, there was an Oklahoma man who brought his collection of five teacups to the filming of one of those shows. Um, they weren't ordinary teacups. They weren't made out of porcelain or some kind of material like that. They were actually made out of a rhinoceros horn. And he brought this set of five teacups. He'd begun collecting things like this back in the 1970s. And he couldn't remember how much he had paid when he originally bought them, but he recalled them being you know, relatively inexpensive, like not, not a crazy amount of money. The appraiser uh, identified this set as incredibly rare, um, from the late 17th or early 18th century in China, and he valued them between $1 and $1.5 million. It set the record, and maybe that's changed since, but at the time it set the record for the most valuable find um, on the show, on the Antique Roadshow. So sometimes you don't know the value of what you have. You don't know the value of what you have. That's actually the whole premise of that show, and of antiquing largely in general. You don't know the value of what you have. Uh, what, what, what happens in that show, what people experience in that show is astonishment. Um, they're astonished because it's revealed to them on the show that they don't know the value of what they've had in their attic or in their basement or they found at this roadside store. That's why people bring their collections and bring their trinkets to have them appraised by a, by a professional. But with a show like that, with a premise like that, eventually the astonishment wears off. It wears off. It becomes not astonishing anymore. It becomes normal. It becomes routine. It becomes even expected. Until, you know, every now and then, the rhinoceros horn teacup set comes along, and it leaves the, the owner, like, literally breathless, speechless, motionless, unable to respond at the shock of that. It's no longer just, hey, you don't know the value of what you have here. It's, no, really... You don't know the value of what you have here. It's that valuable. It's that worthwhile. So that's what I would call um, having your astonishment restored. And it's infinitely more important and significant than a, than a show about antiques. Um, we as Christians need to have our astonishment restored. Astonishment about what? Astonishment about who Jesus is. Uh, astonishment about what Jesus has done. The first time that we really grapple with and then grasp the message of the gospel, what Jesus has done, who Jesus is, there's, there's an astonishment that accompanies that. 
You know, we, we truly, we, we can't believe the worth of what we've stumbled into, of what we've found. Perhaps some of you guys are in a, in a season like that right now. You're relatively new to the faith. You're astonished by Jesus and what he's done. Or you're just in a season like that for, for some other reason. Um, maybe some of you are here this morning, you're not even sure exactly what to believe about Jesus, what to do with him and his claims. But maybe even in wrestling with that, you start to sense something like that happening. You start to sense a little bit of an astonishment kind of setting in. The problem is, and as many of you know this well and from your own experience, um, we're fickle. We're fickle people. The astonishment wears off. And it wears off embarrassingly quickly sometimes. So as a, as a pastor, I get to be around the things of Jesus constantly. I get to read about him. I get to think about him. I get to talk about him. Uh, I get to see him work in the lives of people, including you. And yet, even for me, embarrassingly quickly at times, that astonishment of who Jesus is and what he does, it wears off. It becomes familiar, it becomes normal, it becomes expected. So, if you're anything like me in that, we need something to come along and to restore our astonishment, to wake us up and say, no, really, you don't know the, the value of what you've been given. And the claim that Jesus makes today in, in the text that we're going to read is that kind of thing. It's that kind of astonishment, awakening, or reawakening thing. Uh, and my prayer for us as we, as we dive into uh, th- this text this morning is that God would do just that, that he would meet us through his words and he would restore our astonishment or give it to us for the first time if we've never had it. So we're in John 8. I'm going to pick it up in verse 48 and read through 59, and you can follow along with me as I do that. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say... If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do, not, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, we pray that you would through this, um, through your work in our lives, that you would constantly renew and restore our awe, our astonishment of you. Um, We pray that we'd really wrestle deeply and well with your claims, radical as they are, and that would help us to truly perceive you uh, and who you are and who you've you've revealed yourself to be. Um, So be present with us in our time. Help open our eyes. Break up hardness in our hearts. Make us receptive to hear your word this morning. Uh, And we pray that in your name. Amen. So this, uh, 
This passage in John 8, it's a real pivotal text uh, in the Bible. All of Scripture is important. Don't mean at all to diminish that. But what we have in these words is one of the most radical claims that we have recorded for us. One of the most radical claims that Jesus ever makes about himself written down for us. So we're going to look at this in three parts. We're going to look first at the claim, and then we're going to look at the options, what we, what we can do with that. And then lastly, we'll look at the implications of that. So the claim, the options, and the implications. First, let's talk a little bit about the claim itself. Uh, if you've been with us the last several weeks, this picks up in the same conversation where we've been in John 7 and, and John 8. This ongoing conversation between the Jewish leaders and Jesus. And we start to hear in this passage a lot about Abraham. Uh, that's because the Jewish people, they have a lot of respect for, a lot of pride in, um, their family line, their lineage. They are the descendants of Abraham. And if we were to flip back to the Old Testament book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, we would read that God called Abraham. He told him to leave the land he was currently living in, to go to a new land that God was going to show him, and that from Abraham, God was going to make a great nation, a huge family, an uncountable number of descendants. Now, that all came to pass. Um, These Jewish people, these Jewish leaders, as the descendants of Abraham, they are the outworking of God's promise to Abraham. So the problem here isn't isn't their lineage. They They have a beautiful lineage. The problem is their false sense of security that comes from it. They begin to, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders specifically, begin to see their lineage as their reference point, their starting point, rather than the God who made that promise to Abraham in the first place. And and consequently, um, they can't really comprehend that God would show up on the scene to rebuke and correct them. They don't really have a category for that. Of course God will show up and rebuke and correct other people, but they they can't get their head around that God might actually show up to rebuke and correct them. And so it's into this conversation that Jesus makes this really radical claim. Uh, He starts out by saying, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. In other words, this guy that you're boasting in, this family lineage that you're really excited about and talking about, his faith, Abraham's faith, was a faith that looked forward to the day that I would come. That I would come and and actually completely fulfill that promise that God had made to Abraham. The, the Jews are, are misunderstanding that uh, when they respond to Jesus here. They misunderstand. They, they think Jesus is just talking about age. You know, and they get into this conversation. Well, Abraham lived 2,000 years before this time. Jesus is only in his 30s. He's not yet 50 years old, like they say. So there's no way that Abraham, 2,000 years ago, could have seen Jesus. So then, to clear up the confusion, once and for all, Jesus says these really definitive Words He says in verse 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And if we're just going to look at that as like an English phrase, it's a weird-sounding phrase. It's a weird-sounding phrase. Um, If Jesus were just trying to say that he existed before Abraham, or that he was really old, he would say something like, you know, before Abraham was, I was. And even that is like, more like Yoda than it is like a normal sentence. He would say, like, I existed before Abraham. That would be a normal way to say that. He doesn't say that. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, why does he say it that way? 
to understand this, we actually have to go back to the Old Testament book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 3. If you want to flip there and use one of those black hardcover Bibles, uh, it's page 46 in those uh, black hardcover Bibles. But in this passage in Exodus 3, um, Moses is in the wilderness. He encounters God in the wilderness, and God sends Moses back to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. And he says to Moses in Exodus 3, starting in verse 13, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am has sent me to you. you can keep a finger there. We'll come back to that a little bit later on. But, but in the Bible, there, there are a lot of different names for God. Uh, he's the provider. He's the master. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. There are a lot of names for God. But when Moses asks, the name God uses to reveal himself is I am. The Hebrew name here is Yahweh. And, and if you're curious about this, anytime you read the rest of your Old Testament and you see um, the word Lord in all capital letters, it's that name. It's this name. So though it sounds strange to our ears that God would introduce himself with the name I Am, he says it that way because he's completely self-existent. God is so distinct and different in that he alone exists in and of himself. He's not dependent on anything else for his existence. He's the one that actually creates and sustains all else that is. And moreover, God doesn't change. He's constant. He just is. And so therefore, he can introduce himself as I am. It's a very fitting name for God, as weird as it might sound to to our ears. So in John 8, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, it's directly tied to this name in Exodus chapter 3. This is Jesus identifying himself with the God who revealed himself to Moses in the wilderness, who is the God that called Abraham years before that. So Jesus isn't just saying here, he existed before Abraham, although that's true. He's saying, I am God. I am God. And really, it's really important for us to see the clarity in this, because there's really no other way to interpret or understand these words. And that's why immediately after Jesus says them, the Jewish leaders, they pick up stones and try to kill him on the spot. In their eyes, um, Jesus is committing blasphemy. He's making himself equal with the one true God. And that's true. He is doing that. Uh, Blasphemy would be when someone who's not the one true God does that. And the penalty for that in the Old Testament was death by stoning, throwing rocks at someone until they died from it. So that's what the Jewish leaders try to do. But there's no confusion. That's what I want to make sure we see in this. Uh, make sure that we see there's no confusion on the part of the Jewish leaders what Jesus is saying there. Um, Sometimes the Jewish leaders, they hear Jesus, they're confused about what he's saying. They're confused about his claims. So he says over and over again that he's been sent by God. He says he's returning to God. He says he's come to do the work of God. None of that pings on the blasphemy radar for the Jewish leaders. But this does. Because really there's only one possible meaning that Jesus could have when he says this, and that is that he is God. So that's the claim that each of us has to do something with. It's the claim Jesus makes here. It's radical. It's extreme. Secondly, let's talk about the options. How might we respond 
to Jesus claiming to be the one true God. Many of you will be familiar with an author, thinker, theologian named C.S. Lewis, uh, particularly if you've seen or read the Chronicles of Narnia series. That's some of his most widely known uh, work, especially even outside the Christian circles. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his book Mere Christianity, lays out um, the options in a really concise and helpful way. Listen to what he says. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing people often say about Jesus. That is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, he did not intend to. So sometimes uh, summed up as the uh, lunatic liar or lord argument, or if you're in, your more, if you're in more academic circles, um, C.S. Lewis's trilemma, it's called the trilemma. It's always been, for me, a really helpful and orienting point that he makes here, particularly that last line of what we read, that Jesus himself did not intend to leave an open, a different option open to us besides these. Um, so much of our culture and so, much of, so many other cultures, so many even other worldviews and religions would be more than happy to call Jesus a good man or an example or a great teacher, one who taught these great ethics about love and forgiveness and redemption. Jesus teaches exactly those ethics. But if we're to believe the eyewitness account of Scripture and what Jesus says in Scripture, Jesus doesn't leave open this nominal, you know, milk-toast, you know, um, half-hearted kind of option of him either of just, just being a great moral teacher or an example to us. He shuts the door on that by the extremity, by the radical nature of what he claims, and most specifically this claim in, in John chapter 8. So in case you've ever wondered where C.S. Lewis might come up with this line of thinking, uh, it's, it's all right here. It's all right here in this passage from John 8. In verse 48, Jesus is called a Samaritan. And that doesn't really make any sense because he's known as Jesus of Nazareth. Naz, Nazareth, Nazareth isn't in Samaria, so what's the deal with that? The point is that to the Jews, the Samaritans were, were heretics. They were deceivers of people. And there's even some ancient manuscripts, Jewish manuscripts, that, that equate Samaritans with like the magical arts and fraud and trickery. Um, so maybe, in their mind, Jesus is just a lunatic. He's just a crazy Samaritan. He's accused of as much you know, by the Jewish leaders there in, in verse 48. Maybe Jesus has a demon. He's accused of that as well. Maybe he's possessed. He can't help himself from saying these kinds of crazy things. It's actually one of many times that Jesus is accused of having a demon um, in the gospel narratives. And he always refutes that most often by casting out and getting rid of other demons. He's saying, like, hey, if I'm actually on that team, I'm doing some weird stuff. 
by getting rid of the other ones. That's how he refutes that argument most often. So if he's not a Samaritan nut job, uh, if he's not demon-possessed, maybe he's an outright liar. Maybe Jesus is a liar. And Jesus says in verse 51, if anyone keeps his word, they will never see death. And the Jewish leaders pounce on that. They're like, we got him. We got him. He's like, no one, clearly people have died. We got him. And they hone in on that. Jesus, how can you say that no one will see death? All these faithful people have died. Abraham's died. All the prophets have died. How can you say that? And of course, Jesus isn't talking about physical death. He's talking about the same kind of death that he's already been referencing through John 8 up to this point. The kind of eternal death in, in sin apart from fellowship with God. And Jesus is saying those who keep his word, they, don't, they won't taste that kind of death. Jesus knows, though, that, that they're trying to pin him into this lie. So he goes on to say, look, I, I know you think that I'm lying, but actually, if I were to say that I didn't know God, if I were to deny that I came from God, deny that I know God, deny that I'm doing the work of God, that's actually the lie. The lie would be for me to deny what, it, what I'm doing is from God. And moreover, moreover, he draws a really hard line, and he calls them liars. He says, if I were to do that, if I were to deny that I came from God, I would be liars like you. The extremity of that, the exclusiveness of that, is what grates against our modern sensibilities, does it not? That's what grates against our modern sensibilities. We live in a world where we like to think that everybody's a little bit right. Everybody's a little bit right. And, you know, when people disagree or see things differently, the answer is somewhere in the middle, some balanced midpoint between two opinions. Now, when it comes to conflict between two people, that's almost always true. It's very rare, like 100% right, 100% wrong. It's very often true. But it's not true with the claims of Jesus. Somebody's right here and somebody's wrong. Somebody's a liar Jesus kind of takes the stakes up a notch and he goes, if you're calling me a liar, I'm calling you a liar. One of us is lying. One of us is lying. And Jesus here himself is refusing to give the option to tame or to domesticate him into something less than he actually is. Call me a liar, but don't make me just a great moral example or a great teacher. Just like these first century Jewish leaders chose... Um, just like those who we read about believe in this passage, just like they chose, also, like C.S. Lewis says, each of us have to make a choice about that. Either Jesus is God, or he's a madman, or he's something worse, like C.S. Lewis says. But the clarity that we need to see those options and make our choice comes from the radical nature of claims like this one in, in John chapter 8. So if those are the claims, if those are our options... Then thirdly, what are the implications of this? What are the implications? Many of us in the room, I'm going I'm to make the assumption, have taken Jesus at his word. Um, we look to Jesus as Lord and God. But also, I'm going to make the assumption that so many of us in the room need fresh eyes to see Jesus as the I am to have our astonishment of Jesus and who he is and what he's done restored. Because if Jesus really is the I am, then we have not yet, nor will we ever, fully comprehend the magnitude of who he is. What does it mean that Jesus is the I am? 
two implications for us. First, it means that we should be unsettled by the eternal holiness of Jesus. We should be unsettled by the eternal holiness of Jesus. Some years back, um, there was a t-shirt and bumper stickers and other kind of memorabilia with the phrase, Jesus is my homeboy on it. Anybody familiar with this? Anybody, anybody want to admit to owning one of those? I own, I've owned lots of embarrassing things before. That wasn't one of them. But um, Jesus is my homeboy. I don't remember where I heard this or, or who said it. I wish I did. But I remember at one point hearing someone push back on that idea and saying, hey, actually, homeboy is holy. If you want to call Jesus your homeboy, don't forget that he's holy. It's a great point. Sometimes we lose our astonishment because we domesticate Jesus. Sometimes we lose our astonishment because we tame him, we domesticate him. We start to view Jesus as if he were just a better version of what we see in other people. As if he were just another person kind of like ramped up to a few degrees better. But he's not just another person. He's the eternal, holy God in human flesh. So if familiarity ever leads us to see Jesus as tame and domesticated, we're not perceiving who he is. We, we use his name so flippantly sometimes. We put his name on stuff so flippantly sometimes. We sing his name. Even in church together, we'll sing his name without really comprehending the, the magnitude of his name, that, of who we're singing to in that moment. When God reveals himself to Moses as the I am in Exodus 3, Moses has to take off his shoes because the ground that he's standing on has become holy by the presence of God. The dirt... The dirt becomes holy in the presence of God. And we're going to get here later in John, but in John's Gospel, chapter 18, Judas, one of the twelve, betrays Jesus and brings this band of armed men to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. Jesus sees the armed men coming and he asks, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he doesn't just do the little roll call thing and go, here, present. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, he goes with the same exact words that he says here in John 8. He says, I am. And it says in John chapter 18 that the armed men draw back and fall to the ground. They fall to the ground. It's like we sang about today in the song, uh, The Great I Am. There is none who can stand before the power and the presence of the great I am. So Jesus is so holy, so powerful, that when he introduces himself with his actual name, You can't stand up. And the only reason you could stand up is because if he holds you up in that moment. So in a healthy and necessary way, we have to be unsettled by Jesus as the I am. He's the source of our existence. He's the one that sustains breath in our lungs. He's the one that upholds the universe by the word of his power. Be unsettled by the eternal holiness of Jesus. Secondly, also essentially important, Jesus as the I am means we should be comforted by the purpose of his power. Be comforted by the purpose of his power. He is infinitely holy. He is infinitely powerful. But what does he use that holiness and power for? If you kept your finger in Exodus chapter 3, go back there, picking it up right where we left off. Exodus 3 verse 15. And God continues and says, This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. 
And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and these other peoples, a land flowing with milk and honey. So from the moment that God reveals himself as the I Am, what's the character of that name? It's a personal name. So he's a personal God. He's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not some generic, distant superpower in the sky. He binds himself to people. He pursues relationship with people. It's a compassionate name. God says, I have observed what has been done to you. I see your slavery. I see what sin has marred in you. And I care. I'm moved by that. I care deeply, so much so that not only am I compassionate, but I'm going to do something about it. Because it's a personal name, it's a compassionate name, it's also a redemptive name. God says, not only do I see, but I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. I will bring you into the land of my blessing and my abundance. I will bring you back to myself. See, sometimes we we lose our astonishment because we domesticate Jesus. We can equally lose our astonishment if Jesus becomes too distant from us. He is holy. He is distinct from us. But he is not distant. And when he reveals himself to Moses as the I Am, though he is so holy and powerful that Moses has to take his shoes off, in that same breath, God reveals himself as the personal and compassionate and redemptive God. He's going to leverage his infinite holiness, his infinite power to redeem and reconcile what sin has corrupted. He's going to leverage the fullness of his holiness and power for our good. And there is immeasurable, incomparable comfort in that beyond anything else. The more that we can hold up these two pieces together, the more astonished by Jesus we're going to become. In Jesus, we encounter something more holy, more distinct in his perfection than we could possibly imagine. We encounter one who is more unapproachable than should be possible. And yet, in Jesus, we encounter someone more near to us, more compassionate than the closest human relationship we can imagine. And we encounter the one who leverages all of his eternal power and holiness for our good. He takes all of the power and the greatness of the I am for our good, for our redemption. So to bring it back to John chapter 8, to close there, this is exactly what Jesus the I am, God in the flesh, comes into the world to accomplish. All the eternal holiness of God in human form sacrificed in the place of sinful men and women like you and me, that we might not taste death, that we need not die in our sin, but that we might experience life in his salvation, both now and forever, that he is not domesticated, he is not distant, he is the I am. So may we be astonished that the I am who brought us into being is the very same I am lifted up in our place. And may Jesus, the I am, restore our astonishment of the salvation that he has given to us. May we see the value and the worth of that as incomparable with anything else. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we pray that when we use your name, 
we would see the fullness of what that means. A holy, powerful, perfect God that holds the universe up by the word of your power. And yet takes all of that power and uses it for our redemption, uses it for our good. May we both be unsettled by that, where you don't become too familiar and tame to us, but may we also be comforted in that because we've seen your heart and we've seen your purposes and we've seen your intent in the way you use all of who you are for our good. We come and we worship and we fall down because we can't stand at the mention of your name. And as we come to your table this morning, we see even more, hopefully clearly today, that when you sacrificed yourself for us, it wasn't just as a great example of sacrificial love, though it is that, but it was you leveraging your power to buy us back from sin, to set us free. May we come with great joy because of what you've done for us, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen.